Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are beginning today the book of Numbers. We are leaving, therefore, the book of Leviticus. So had we been in shul and had we had a Torah scroll, we would have gone to the end of the last Parsha, in the book of Leviticus, and we would have said, Chazak, Chazak, Venit, Chazek. May we be strengthened in our continued uh, search for learning and Torah as we begin the book of Numbers. The book of Leviticus was all about the details. The book of Leviticus was a book of instruction. It's a manual. This is how you do everything that you need to do as Israelites to keep the relationship with the divine uh, such that you are, you're good, that the divine presence can rest in the Mishkan, that the Israelites were told exactly how to build. They followed the specifications exactly. Um, So it's very, very detailed, the entire book of Leviticus. How do you diagnose this? How do you know someone has Tzarat? How do you keep checking? The priest is given how to check. Then you're taught, you know, this is, This is how you avoid being impure. When you're impure, this is what you do. This is when you come back from impurity. Then you have a ritual. So then you come back to the... So it's all these details about how to keep everything running. The book of Numbers is almost completely the opposite. So the book of Numbers is uh, the word Bamidbar. Actually, um, all Hebrew titles for the books of the Bible come from the first usable word in the text. So this... The first word that is usable as a title of a book uh, in the first sentence of the book of Numbers is Bamidbar, in the Midbar, in the wilderness. This is not desert. Do not think Lawrence of Arabia. This is not rolling dunes of sand in the middle of the Middle East. The Midbar gets enough rain that it is not considered desert. You know, there's a certain amount of rain, I forget how much, quarter inch or less or something, is about what you determine something, when you determine something to be a desert. The midbar is not the desert. There's enough scruff, there's enough stuff for animals to eat. So semi-nomadic pastoralists would pass through the midbar and they they could feed their flocks in the midbar, in the wilderness. So this is not complete middle of no, absolute nowhere desert. It is a little left of Yemensville, right? So it is not the metropolis. This is not the city. This is not even the village. This is the midbar. This is the wilderness. We know, beginning this book, that something's going to happen fairly soon that is going to render this a 38 year, we're starting at year 30, we're starting at year um, two today in the book of Numbers. So it's going to be 38 years of dying. That's what's going to happen. This generation is condemned to die in the wilderness. And that means the entire book of Numbers is really about that generation dying. That's their job. Their job is to die. So from the beginning, where we start now, till the end, when they take a census right before entering the land, 
it's 38 years and an entire generation disappears, disappears into the sand. So, so um, Professor Aviva Zorenberg writes that in some ways, this is a book of failure, right? In some way, this is a book about disappearance. This is a book about everybody. Everybody's gone by the end of this story. Their only job is to die. So um, that's a pretty depressing way to look at it. Um, and it. And because they're going to wander for 40 years, they keep coming back through the same places. So what starts as a journey this way, like we're going to go from here to the promised land and it shouldn't take that long. That journey becomes instead the book of numbers, which is circuitous, right? They keep going back through different places because where are they going to go? They can't go to the promised land. They got, they got forbidden this generation from that. So instead of it being a straight path from liberation to uh, building the society based on Torah values instead of that, which is what it was supposed to be. It's 38 years of this generation wandering in the midbar until they die. And the next generation is ready to uh, enter the promised land with the book of Joshua. Uh, doesn't even happen right at the end of Torah. End of Torah is Moshe looking over at the promised land, right? They're still on this side of the Jordan at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It is Joshua who will lead them into battle um, according to our sacred mythology, um, lead them into battle to conquer the promised land. All right. So that's, that's where we're at. We're coming out of this manual about this is how you do it. And we're coming to now the book, the beginning of the book of numbers. They've received Torah. They've built the Mishkan. They got everything up and running. Now we're going to start the book of numbers with a description of how they encamp because this is now, they're now getting ready to go. They're getting ready to start the journey. They got all the instructions that they need. They got all the details. They built everything. They've got everything going in their daily routine. They've got their sacrifices. They know about purity, all that stuff. Now they're going to move as a military camp towards the promised land. That's what's happening here. We know that's not what's going to happen, but they don't know that, right? That's not how our story starts. Uh, in the book of Numbers. Um, some really, really powerful stuff by uh, Aviva Zornberg that I'll get to um, towards the end from her book, Bewilderments, which is her commentary on the book of, uh, of Bamidbar, of the book of Numbers. So in Hebrew, it's Bamidbar in the wilderness. Uh, the English title comes from what happens at the very beginning of chapter one, we're reading the first third of every Torah portion right now. Uh, and so we are going to start at the very beginning of the book of Numbers. Uh, and so let's say for starting a new book of Torah at the first word of that book. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam we bless the source of life for giving us life and sustaining us in that life that we could reach together this joyful moment in time. All right. So God is speaking to Moshe in the Midbar, the wilderness of Sinai. Of Sinai, God is speaking from the tent of meeting. When? On the first day of the month. What month? Hasheni, the second month. 
in the second year, let's say Tom Eretz Mitzrayim, of their going out from the land of Egypt. The first day of the month in the ancient world would have been a holiday. Uh, and so this is, it's, it's auspicious, right? If God is going to address them, it's time to get stuff going. Um, it's time to start the story after we have the interruption of the entire book of Leviticus. So it's going to happen on the first day of the month. That makes total and complete sense. Um, in the second year, the second month of the second year, having gone out from Egypt. All right. So God speaks to Moshe. What does God say to Moshe? So a very interesting way to talk about, take a census of the entire Edah, the entire community of Israel. So this is interesting language whereby to talk about count the people. How is it stated in Hebrew? Se'u et rosh, lift up the head Israel of every member of the community of Israel, according to their clans. Mishpacha, we think of Mishpoche as family. That is true. But in biblical Israel, the Mishpacha is the clan. They did not have nuclear families as the organizing unit. The organizing unit was your Mishpacha, it was your clan. So according to their clans, according to their ancestral houses. So there are, there are bigger units and smaller units. So from the smaller unit to the, to the bigger unit of the ancestral house, listing, so we're going to get a list of the names, right? So by the count of names, every male a gulgal is a circle. So according to their circle, meaning according to their head. This is very bizarre Hebrew, right? This is all euphemisms. Se'u, lift up the head of every member of Israel according to their clan and their ancestral house, numbering their names, every male according to his circle, his head. From the age of 20 and up. Why? All those who would go out to the army. You will, I, I'm loath to translate the word, but um, you will count them. You will appoint them. Litzvotam atave aharon. Um, you, you and Aaron will do that for all these folks who are uh, of military serviceable age and status. This is a muster, right? They are getting ready to go to war. Again, very tangled Hebrew. Um, and with y'all shall be person by person, according to their tribe. Right now we get another uh, word for another uh, kinship group, which is mate, tribe. Each one, rosh levet avotavhu, um, who's the head of their household. What does this mean? This means that each head of household will create a list of names, shemot, 
a list of names of every male in their, that they're responsible for in their group, their kinship group, every male from the age of 20 and over so that they know their fighting force. They know how big their fighting force is to a person. What's interesting to me about this is there's a lot of commentary on the fact that they don't count the people. They count shemot. They count names. So the way we you know, tend to think about counting, particularly we who are post-Shoah, we tend to think of counting as being a dehumanizing act. We tend to think of counting people as being some way to make them less an individual, right? Now they're just a number. They're just a, a part of a total, and they're, they're not unique individuals. And the rabbis really love to point out in all kinds of beautiful midrashim, um, they point out that the, just the language of Torah, lift up the head of every member of Israel, just that language is talking in language that is respectful of people. It is dignifying this kind of counting. And then they point to this word in, in verse 3, tif kedu otam. Those of you who have studied with me before, you'll remember I spent a great deal of time during one of our lessons on the root pakad. Pei kuf dalid. When you see this, this root, pei kuf dalid, it comes from pakad, to notice, to appoint, to give someone a tafkid is to give someone a role. So this word for counting is actually not about just counting, like there's seven of you and not eight. Teeth kuduotam, you are counting them in order to give them a role. And that giving them a job, giving them a role is a dignifying thing. When we come to the, uh, the uh, Amidah, we come to the Tefillah, the blessing that we say is Magain, right? We talk about God as being Magain Avraham that God is the shield, like Magain David. God is Magain Avraham, the shield of Avraham. And then when we wanted to gender equalize the bracha, when we wanted to, to make the prayer gender inclusive, they added our foremothers. And what do they say about Sarah? What is God to Sarah? Pokade Sarah. This word. Pokade, God pokades Sarah. Meaning God took notice of Sarah, and what happens when God takes notice of Sarah? She conceives Isaac. So, so pokating on God's part is always a good thing. If God pokades you, that's good. There's other ways God can take notice of you in Hebrew that's not good, that you do not want, right? But this one is good, pokating. All right, so this whole idea is that these people are given a role. They're given a job. That This is an army encampment. This is going to be a military expedition. So they need people who can guard the vulnerable, who can guard the, the young and the elders and the weak and um, the females, presumably. <laughs> um, and so you, you have to count who you have in your force. They are going to be given a tafkid. They are going to be given a role. The Eile, Shemot HaAnashim, Asher Ya'amdu Itchem. Leruven, Eliezer, Ben Shideor. So we're going to now get a list of the names. Just in case we were to think Torah is only interested in totals, it's not true. 
here are the names, right, of the heads of all of these households. Um, very interesting names, as you can see. Shimon Shlumiel Ben Suri Shaddai. That is a mouthful. Poor guy. I hope they went by his initials. Yehuda Nachshon Ben Aminadav. Yisachar Netan El Ben Suar. Lizvun Eliezer Ben Cholen. Livnei Yosef Ephraim Elishama Ben Amihud. Limenashe Gamliel Ben Pedatzor. Levinamin, blah, 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 blah. Verse 16, we have a creek teeth, right? So it's written one way. We read it another way. Ela krue, we don't read kuf resh yud aleph yud. We read instead kuf resh vav aleph yud, which you see there in the brackets. So it's written in the Torah one way, but we, in the brackets you have a ketiv, you have the I mean, the Cree, you have the way we actually read it when we read Torah. So probably a scribal error. When Torah was being copied, you know, before we had the Gutenberg press, it had to be done all by hand. Still, as you know, Sefer Torah must be written by hand. Um, that means mistakes. You make a yud a little bit longer and you can't tell if it's a vav or a yud. So the creek teeth happens a lot when you're dealing with the letter vav and yud, as we are here. So if you look at the third letter... Even if you don't read Hebrew, it doesn't matter. Look where my pointer is. That little bitty thing is a yud. Over here's how we actually read the word with a vav, because that's what makes sense. So you can see if you just extend a yud down a little bit, you have a vav. And if you're in between, people can't tell. And so this probably got miscopied as a yud when it should be a vav. All right. So these are the, um, the appointed leaders, right? The nasi of each mateh, the nasi, nasi a, the, 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 the leaders of matot, the tribes. Um, so here we get, um, it's interesting, they don't translate this. Alfei Yisrael, a lot of people translate Elef as a thousand. So the thousands of Israelites. Um, we, we think LF actually means something more like a unit, a military unit. If you start using Torah's numbers by the, the, if you call LF a thousand, then when we get all these numbers, when they count them, it's, it's ridiculously huge. And there's no way um, a contingent that large could have even, they even imagine them supporting themselves uh, in the desert. Um, uh, in the Midbar, there's just not enough food, etc. So, um, so probably means something more like a military unit, although some scholars want to argue that this is how Torah, like all ancient mythology, brags about its history by exaggerating and by exaggerating the numbers of Israelites that were involved. So they, they got all the names, right? The names of those aged 20 years and over being listed head by head. Again, they're not counting just the people, they're counting their names. And um, so kind of this idea that, again, each person has a name. Each person is an individual. They count those names. They don't just count bodies. So they did this just as God commanded. Moshe, and they were, and they gave them, Roles they appointed them Bamid Bar Sinai in the or counted them that word means all those things Bamid Bar Sinai in the desert of uh, in the wilderness of Sinai. 
So here we get a number, we get start to get numbers. As you see, from the tribe of Reuben alone, 46,500. It does not make sense that it's 1,000. It's probably, right, 46 units, um, military units. 59 from Simeon, 59.3. Um, 45.650 from God. Um, 74.6 from Judah. These numbers are just outrageous. 54.4 from Yisachar. There's no way. There's no way. This many people, right? Um, nobody would have imagined that they could have supported themselves. Of course, God feeds them with mana. So there is a way to look at this that they do, in fact, mean thousands here. And they do, in fact, mean that God supported that entire Adah, that entire group. If these are just the males, 20 years old and older, imagine how many people we're talking about. If there's 40,000 from Ephraim, there's at least that many women, right? So now you're talking 80,000. Now forget, the, what about people over the, I mean, under that age? So it's just, these numbers just don't make uh, any sense unless you want them to be huge, magical, mythical numbers that God miraculously, um, because God is God, um, is able to feed and sustain in the Midbar for their 38 years. All who enrolled came to 600,000, um, as you can see here, 3,550. Um, so we get a total number here. The Levites were not recorded among them by their ancestral tribe right now. Why? Because the Levites don't go out to war right? The, the Levites have the business of protecting the Mishkan. Uh, they have a different job. Hefked et So look at verse 50. You, meaning Moshe, hefked et al Mishkan ha'edut. You're going to give them a job. You're going to appoint them. Um, and so you need to count them too, right? But they're appointed where? Al Mishkan ha'edut. Over the tabernacle of witnessing, and over all its vessels, and everything that, that pertains to it, they are going to be carrying. So lift up the head of every member of Israel. Here we get the word, they will lift up. What are they going to lift up? All of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and all of its aperturances um, and its vessels and all of that stuff. Right, um, and they are going to be saviv lamishkan yachanu. They're going to be camping saviv around lamishkan, the mishkan. Uvin soa hamishkan yoridu oto halaviim. And when the vines, uvin soa hamishkan, when the mishkan goes forth, the levim uh, will take it down. And when it's supposed to be put up again, the Levites, yeah. It says, Yakimu Oto, they will lift it up. They will set it up, right? Um, because any encroachment is punishable by death. Okay. After this, we're going to get a huge description of uh, the way they were to camp around the Mishkan under their different degel. Each of them has a degel, a banner, and they were to be camped in a certain order around the Mishkan under each of their banners. So far, do we have any concerns or any comments or any questions? Elena? 
I was very surprised by the um, age 20 being the age that men began to fight. I would have assumed that it would be 17, 16. Right? Yeah. Well, no, no commentary about why that is? Um, it's not that big a difference. I mean, in Athens, it was 18. Oh, you know, so like 18, 20 is not that different. It seems Torah gives them a couple more years. You know, ancient Israel, it seems, gave them a few more years. The age of conscription um, in the ancient Near East ranged from, you know, younger to, uh, I don't know if there's anyone older than ancient Israel in terms of who, when they start conscription. But in ancient Israel, clearly it was age 20. They give them an adolescence. They give them an adolescence. Maybe even an extended adolescence. <laughs> no uh, George Wolkon has a question. I was upset in your beginning when you talked about the only job was of the uh, Israelites was to die. A much more optimistic one is to uh, beget a new generation uh, so that they could go into Canaan uh, to the Israel, uh, in the okay, and not, not that I ever want to crush an optimist's way of looking at anything, don't get me wrong, um, but the reason it, she's, she, Zorenberg's talking that way, that it's a book of about their only job is to die, is because they were supposed to go into the promised land. They weren't supposed to just raise up another generation. They were supposed to go, they're on their way right now. What we just read, they're on their way to the promised land. They blow it. They were supposed to just keep going till they got to the border, fight, take the land, and settle. That's what we have here, is a description of setting out to do that. They blow it. And because they blow it, now they're not going to continue on that journey. Now they're just going to keep circling around in the midbar till they die. That's all they have left to do is die. Now, do they raise up another generation? Yes. But they would have done that anyway. They would have done that presumably in the land, but they're not going to get there. Yeah, but they did not know that. They did not know that right now. Right. They don't know it yet. Correct. We start in optimism, and it doesn't take too long before they blow it. Yeah, it's also a little inconsistent with the concept of uh, in the census that the great respect they have for the individuals. And then say, you know, by naming them and not just counting them, uh, and then say their only job is to die. Well, that's me saying that. I'm, I'm saying that quoting Zornberg, that their only job is to die. You could, you could argue against that. That's fine. My, my point is that when she pointed that out, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's true. Like this generation, they're not going to do anything. They, we're just waiting. As soon as they're condemned, we're just waiting for them to die. Then the, the, everyone who was 20 years and younger can go into the promised land. We're just waiting around. That is not a very, like, that's, it was like a shocking description of the book to me, right? Is, you know, and, and these individuals are being counted as individuals. They have an opportunity to count, to make a difference, and they blow it. All right, Jody, and then Sarah. Um, on that, when you said that the first usable word is uh, the midbar, 
what what does that mean? It's the first usable word because it's one, two, three, fourth word in. Because you can't call the book God spoke to Moses. Oh, okay. So it's where. Okay. Right. The, the, the first words are God spoke to Moses saying. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So you can't call the book that because that happens. It doesn't distinguish this book from every other book. Right. right. If you're going to distinguish okay. this book, we, we use the word Bamidbar in the wilderness. Okay. Sarah? Well, there are two ways of looking at the generation that died. Yes, ma'am. One is that that was a generation of failure. And the other is the fact that they couldn't make it inspired the next generation. So a progressive history continues. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Very nice. So, right, there's always going to be the generation before us that perishes, right? So it's about, do we, do we understand our obligations in light of that? And that we are the generation who's then charged with going in, right? That's, you know, and, and how do we understand that continuity, right? Do we carry their narrative forward? Um, well, the fact that Israel exists is big proof that we carry that forward. Lovely. Lovely. Um, and some of us feel like we've done that in America. That, you know, I stand on the shoulders of my grandparents who came here, or their parents, actually, um, who came here, right, that I feel like I do that as an American. That that's, you know, that the American Jewish community is thriving. I feel like that's part of, right, my, my continuity with the past and, and taking what they did and, and moving it forward, moving progressive Judaism forward in the United States and building this amazing diaspora community, the most successful diaspora community, by the way, in the history of the Jewish people, um, to rival that of the land of Israel. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, I see Natasha's hand is up. Yeah, I just, I have a question for clarification, I think. Yes, ma'am. Um, so they're condemned because of the golden calf. But no, they, no, 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 no. Okay. No. That but should have done it. That should have done it. <laughs> well, but, because when I looked at the Rashi commentary, I guess I was confused then when I read. So are they condemned yet or they're about to be condemned? They have not been condemned yet. Okay, okay. That they are going to be condemned because they are told to fight and they don't. Okay, okay. They chicken out. Okay. And God says, are you kidding me right now? Um, but, but we don't know that in the, like, if you have just started reading the Torah, you don't know that yet, that Correct. they're going to be condemned. Okay. Correct. But we know that from having read it before. Correct. Okay, got it. So that's why, thank you for the clarification question. That is why I love Zornberg, because we're, we're reading it through the lens of people who've read it before. We know as we begin this book and they're, uh, they're uh, you know, setting up the camp as a war camp because they're going to go, you know, crush the Canaanites. Um, you know, we, we know that's not what's going to happen. So it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's weird. You, you know, when you, when you watch a show and, th and that you love, and then if you watch it more than once and you're like, I never noticed right? That she wore that dress. 
in the last episode, yeah, right, in the first episode of the show, right? So you, you start to notice these things because you've seen it before and now you're watching it through completely different lenses. And so it's fun to, for me to read Torah through, right, the lens of, of Zornberg, who knows very well, she really, she really feels the disappearance of this generation. I really don't think of that usually. Right. I'm like, here's our story. It goes along. Oops. Right. They're going to die. You know, but I don't, I never really thought about that. that, And she says so beautifully counting when you count, you're not only counting who's there, you're also counting who's missing. Right. You know, when you number the total, you're numbering the total now. You're numbering the total, like when they count again before they go into the land, you, you're counting who's left. Meaning there's a bunch of other folks who are absent. So it's just, it's just a very interesting, and, and, and I'm, there's a reason I'm interested also right now in this moment about how she's looking at it. Um, I want to read to you from her. Um, it's just, she's just such a profound writer. Um, all right. What is this midbar? What is this midbar that we're in? For that original generation of travelers, it was once intended as the transitional space between Egypt and the land of Israel. Now it has become something else, a clearing ground for the future. What can be said about the space that is to become a dead end for those who embarked on a journey? Is this the very nature of Midbar? the unmarked surface on which no human trace is visible. All right. Love that. All right. Um, yeah. Does somebody want to stop me? Yes. yes. I'm reminded of, of the talk of the five qualities that tie you to the, the Jewish people that you talked about from the Hartman Institute. And I think you've just mentioned one that, seems to me would be a sixth validly of a desire to see a continuity and a commitment to the continuity of a people. And so for you, which of those categories that Hartman described, does this fit into family? It's beyond family. I think it's more than that. It's, it's more than, than just the now it's looking to the future and realizing an obligation for the future so for the Jewish people. What's that obligation about? What, what obligates you to these people that come after you? Your belief in, in what it is that's worth surviving for. Okay. So, so two categories. One is that they're our family, right? They're the next generation of this family. Um, and number two is, is what he had that category of, co- of believers, that we share a belief in, let's say, a certain set of values, right? A certain set of ethics, a certain set of morals that should guide the kind of society that we build. Yes, but it's it's beyond, it's one step more, and it's that those morals and attitudes and family organizations should survive. We have been really committed to survival. Uh, And we've seen evidence where our survival has been so threatened and we've pursued survival diligently through all the centuries. Does that make us different than anybody else? 
I think so. I don't think of any other civilization that has been as determined to hold on to what they believe and pursue it through so many centuries and have found ways to do it by learning, by counting, by observing, by sticking together. The sense of community, I think, is so powerful in the Jewish world. And I don't see that in any other society through through history, from anthropology. That would, a, that would be a very interesting conversation. I think that could be a, a very interesting two-hour conversation, right? Like, is that unique to the Jewish people? Because okay. Christians could say the same thing, right? That over 2,000 years and starting with the biblical period, so they would count themselves as old as we are, you know, because they come from our tradition according to their mythology. They, they've survived. They've passed it on, right? But what, what you're pointing out is, that, okay, but that's different. It's a religion. You can convert into that a little differently because that's what makes us different. We're a family. This is what he was talking about. This is what Hartman's talking about. Okay. There's a responsibility that claims me as a member of the Jewish people, right? Yes. I can't articulate it by I believe this and therefore I am loyal to this group. It's I belong to this group. And it has a claim on me. The previous generations, the next generation have a claim on me that is about something beyond a voluntary, I'll sign up because I agree with what the teachings are. Or I agree, right? Like it's beyond that. there's There's a claim that we feel that is about being obligated. For continuity. Yes. That's right. And that's different. Right. So that, okay. Yes. So that's where I say Jewish peoplehood is what is the, that's what Mordecai Kaplan said. Right. Funny that I'm a reconstructionist rabbi. So Kaplan said, that is what distinguishes the Jewish people is that we are a people. And that part of what binds us to the generations before and wanting the continuity for the generations to come is the language, the food, the art, the expression, the sense of humor, our history, our mythological history, our way of looking at the world. That those that is what is unique and defining yes. about us is that we are a people with a religious civilization. Yes, but it's not necessarily a list of rules. No, it's the community says right. that's so, so that's so powerful. Right. That's what Kaplan, Kaplan says defines right. us and that's makes right. us different than right. other religious civilizations. It's not a list of rules that if you agree with them, I'm in, and if I don't, I'm out. It doesn't right. work like that. No. Right? There's a claim on us that we belong to this people, and that has obligations associated with it that are not about belief. That is not about consumerism, like what you can do for me. Right. right. It's not, it's about being a family. And, and he doesn't mean blood in that sense. He means the claim of family, right, on us. So um, I'm glad it doesn't mean blood. Yeah. No, <laughs> and, he, and he said that. He was very clear about that, you know, that it's, um, it, it's different than that. It's not unrelated to that, but it's not defined right. by that, right? Our, our sense of obligation to the next generation is not just because of my genes will survive. Right. Do you feel that that's a somewhat extended statement from what um, Daniel Daniel Hartman claimed? It's yes. a, a bit think, fuller, think, fleshed out. I think a lot of Hartman is actually Reconstructionist. <laughs> like they sounds like it. They quote Kaplan a lot. Um, I really think they are very much Reconstructionists. Brent, did you have your hand up? 
Yes. Go ahead. You mentioned, you mentioned earlier, and we've all read, how the Jews were in the wilderness for 40 years before they went to Israel. How, yes. did, how did they know that, their time was, that it was their time to go into Israel? Because God told them. He told them, okay. Yeah, it's time. Get your act together. Joshua's going to lead them into battle. It's time. And Moses was already was deceased by then. Dead. Dead now. He dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy after having publicly charged, you know, he puts his hands on Joshua and publicly makes Joshua the leader so that there's continuity, so that nobody doubts, right, that it's God's choice and Moshe approves. It's Moshe, what is it, I, not, I approve this at, right? So Moshe has to endorse the choice publicly. So after, after he does that, he goes up to the mountain and dies, and never again did there arise in Israel a leader, a prophet like Moshe. That's the end of the five books. We have to read the Deuteronomic history. We have to read the book of Joshua, which, you know, we have the Pentateuch, the five books. If you add the, the uh, conquering of the land, that's the book of Joshua, and it's called the Hexateuch, the six books. So, um, so if we continued through the Deuteronomic history, we would get the story of Joshua leading them. Remember Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, right? God directs Joshua fighting and fights on the side of the Israelites, and they are victorious, and they right, take over the – and then it has the whole – the series of cities they conquer, right? Okay. And some, are, some settle on the other side. Two tribes and half of Manasseh settle on the other side of the Jordan, this side of the Jordan, right? The rest go, that they agree to fight with the rest of Israel, but they're going to come back to this land on the other side because it's better for their business, what they do. All right. God's love, says Aviva Zornberg, God's love, it seems, is at its keenest in two opposite situations, in celebration and after catastrophe. Counting punctuates both presence and absence. It is a way of paying attention, right? This word pokade. She's picking up on the word pokade. It is a way of paying attention. For Rashi, loving attention to the individual within society. It is striking that the word pakad, which is used some 20 times to refer to the act of registering in the census, generates a larger field of meaning that includes paying attention, appointing, visiting, seeking, desiring, being interested, as well as depositing, committing, and trusting. These are all senses of the word pakad. At the same time, pakad refers to absence. It attends to a loss. For example, after the battle against the Midianites at the end of the book, the Pekudim, those appointed, appointed to count the survivors, report to Moshe. Your servants have made a check of the warriors in our charge, and not one of us is nifkad. Not one of us is missing, meaning absent. So I was thinking about this in terms of COVID-19. And so I was talking last night you know, at our annual meeting and, um, and giving a Devar Torah, talking a little bit about where we've moved out of the book of Leviticus in terms of this whole pandemic. We've moved out of, okay, I wear a mask. Where do I get a mask? How do I get groceries? Do I buy them myself? Do I do Instacart? How do I do Instacart? How do I raise my hand on Zoom? 
how do I wash my hands? Who knew we didn't know how to wash our hands, right? So until now, right? And so like, how, how does it live on surfaces? What does that mean, right? Do I wear gloves and then, but what then if I touch my cell phone? That's the book of Leviticus. Take your gloves off before you touch your cell phone. Don't touch your face. Take off the gloves before you touch the door handle of your car, right? Blah, 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 blah. That's Leviticus. Diagnosing, preventing, figuring out everything we have to figure out, how to get everything running, the groceries, the, the whatever it is, your housekeeper, do they come? Do they not? Do they wear a mask? Do they not? The whole business is the book of Leviticus. Now, here we are at what some people are calling the endurance phase of the pandemic, of the quarantine. We're now in this place of numbers. We are now in the wide open of the Midbar with no map, no understanding of the plan. We, like the Israelites, thought this was going to be a pretty straightforward affair, right? You just go through it. We'll be on lockdown. Remember when we just, you know, remember 86 years ago when we locked down, right? Lori Hasenkamp said, yeah, this is March 85th. Which I think is hilarious. It is right. This, today is March eighty sixth. <laughs> so remember, we we stopped in mid March. None of us thought. Who thought it was going to be ten weeks? And we know it's going to go on more than that, right? Who? None of us. When we shut down KI, thought it was going to be three months of lockdown. Nobody thought that. It was a pretty straightforward affair. We're going to shut down. Blah blah blah. Everything will get handled. They'll do what they need to do we're not there anymore. <laughs> we are now at the place of, uh-oh, <laughs> right? We're at the place of, there doesn't seem to be a plan. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of guidance. I just got off the friggin' Zoom call with the governor's office going, what, what, are, what changed? What changed that you now are gonna open houses of worship? Nothing's changed, like, we're still sitting here with no vaccine. We're sitting here with no treatments. We're sitting here with no ability to guess how this disease is going to hit each individual. Who knew it was going to do this to kids? Who knew it was going to do that to certain adults? Nobody knows. And nobody knew. We are in the book of Bamibar. We are in the wilderness. And it's going to be a lot longer than we thought. <laughs> right? This time in the Midbar is a lot longer than we bargained for. Um, and in that sense, you know, Zornberg's also trying to really take in it. So when, when I look at CNN every day, I can't help it. I just can't help it. I look at it every day. And every day they've got that column on the right, right? That says how many cases worldwide and how many deaths. And then they say in the U.S., how many cases, how many deaths? First of all, I just ignore the cases because there's no testing, really. So those numbers are meaningless. <clears throat> but the, that number that is now at, what, 92-something? 92,000? That's what Aviva Zornberg's talking about, I think. And when Anderson Cooper highlights those people, some of those people who have died this week, what he's doing is this. He's saying that in the counting, it's also about absence. And in a number like 92,000, let us not lose the understanding that each one of those numbers was an individual. 
was someone with a life, a history, a family, someone who had teachers and parents and, you know, contributed or didn't to the community in this way or that way. They had their own biological quirks. They had their own biographical challenges, their own talents, their own abilities, their own places. They blew it. That every single one of those 92,000 people was a universe unto itself, says our Torah, was a world unto itself. For me, was the entire world created, we're supposed to believe. And that when one person is destroyed, it's like destroying the whole world. That's why Adam was created alone in the beginning, say the rabbis, to let us know every single human being is an entire universe, is an entire world. And so it just struck me, this, this counting that we're doing, 92,000 people. Is it just a number? I worry. I worry that we, we're not as attached as we should be to, because I, I, we're not seeing bodies, right? I, I think we should be seeing some more bodies, frankly, because then I'm not so sure these, these places would be so eager to open up. Really? What's changed about the danger to the people that you're wanting to bring into that building? You say you're bringing them in because you want to serve them. How do you serve them? By putting their lives and health at risk and encouraging them. So, um, so I, I was just very aware of that. Um, in, in reading Zorenberg uh, at this time of quarantine, the other one uh, is the, the, the sense of being kind of lost, the sense there's no, the desert is a place, the, the midbar is a place where there's no casinos, people, right? There's no mall. There's, there's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. They're going to just be circling around from camp to camp to camp for 38 years. I don't know about you, but it's starting to feel like quarantine has been 38 years. <laughs> you know what I would give to go to TJ Maxx right now? You have any idea what I would give to go to TJ Maxx right now? Rita understands. Either she's saying, I understand, or I have a comment or question. Which is it, Rita? I I also miss TJ Maxx myself, (laughs) but um, it reminded me, I think it was during um, one of the Gulf Wars or the one of our wars where they didn't want to show bringing the bodies back. We were not allowed to see those bodies, and it, it took away the any emotion that we might have had because they were just numbers. And then we started seeing the bodies. I think it really made a difference. And I think that's kind of analogous. Thank you, Rita. Um, because it, I feel like it affirms, right? What I, not that I, of course, I don't mean to be gross about wanting to see bodies. That's, I hope you know what I mean. I mean, we, we are being protected from the horror that this is, this number of deaths. And and I think as long as we don't have to face those bodies coming home in caskets, there's a, you know, or going you know to the morgue and being stacked up in a fridge outside, as long as we don't have to really confront that, I think we there are people who are making really bad decisions, really bad decisions in these states that are opening up. I hope I'm wrong. Believe me, I will be the first to jump up and down with joy if I am wrong. But I'm very worried that people are making really stupid choices and rushing out to bars and crowded places like that, you know, um, 
because it's their right. And I'm just, I'm very afraid that we are, we're not really dealing with and getting the, the, the impact of this. All right. In commanding a census, right, Zornberg, God asks them to account for the many others, to acknowledge that they count, to note their presences and absences. This is to take place in the wilderness where skepticism undermines experience. The camp numbered and ordered and bannered in tribal units surrounding God's tabernacle is to move through the wilderness as a gesture gesture precisely of trust, of an almost flamboyant constancy and coherence. But how does this gesture affect the wilderness reality and how do those two realities meet each other? We are in a place of inexperience, of skepticism, right, of doubt. And what starts happening with these people? What starts happening pretty soon? Complaining. Next comes the complaining, right? Next comes, we don't have this. We don't have that. I want meat. I haven't had a steak in months, right? And God says, you want steak? I'm going to give you steak. I'm going to give you quail till it's coming out your nostrils, right? Is God's response. God has had it soon. doesn't take long. We're in that place. And when we're in that place of being lost and feeling skeptical, and there's, there doesn't feel like there's a great plan here, and, and we have no experience of this, and we don't know what to do, and there's no shopping, and there's no distractions, there's not a good meal to look forward to at a restaurant with a nice white tablecloth. Like there, When there isn't that stuff, we start to get panicky and anxious, and we start to grumble. And I'm going to see the entire story of the book of Bamidbar differently through the eyes of the pandemic, through right the eyes of all of us being at home in an unprecedented situation, not knowing when it's going to be over, not knowing when it's going to end, not, n- not knowing, just the not knowing and the incredible sometimes boredom of it. You know, March 86th, <laughs> we had 86 days of the same month happening, right? Like we, we laugh at KI and call it Groundhog Day. You know, it's like, you know, we wake up and we turn on Zoom and do our meetings and it, that all day, every day. All right. I want to read to you from Rabbi Michael Strassfeld. He says, the Hebrew name for our book is Bamidbar, in the desert, After receiving the Torah at Sinai and building the portable sanctuary, the Israelites are finally ready to make the journey to the promised land. They expect to get there quickly, but find themselves Bamidbar, wandering in the desert. A desert lacks landmarks. The way ahead is unclear. Mirages can lead you astray. Some complain about the hardships in the desert and want to return to Egypt. Some have already rushed ahead with disastrous results. We too have entered a desert, the wilderness of the coronavirus. We too thought we would soon find our way through to the other side. Now we feel like lost wanderers in a strange and threatening land. We would happily follow any path that would lead us through, but there are no clear road signs. Then he goes into this lovely a uh, little piece on Davar, but, but 
I'm coming down to this paragraph, the desert. So now he's going to talk about, but there are other things in the desert, right? For Zoromborg, yes, it's a place of death, for sure, and a disappearance. But he says the desert has mana, moments of unexpected grace, when people make noise nightly to thank the healthcare workers. It has burning bushes that urge us to slow down enough to see the miracle of a bush or a life on fire, but that is not consumed. We are meant to be not wanderers, but wanderers, knowing that all journeys travel toward an untrodden landscape known as the future. What shall we pack in our bags for this journey? What is the davar, the inspiring word or a cherished thing, such as love or hope that we can bring with us? What is the generosity of heart that each of us will offer to build the sanctuary society that will accompany us on our way? What is our Torah, our teaching? Vedibartabam, you shall speak them. When feeling at home and when adventuring on the road, when you feel downhearted and when you stand up against injustice, these words shall be expressed by your actions, be the vision in your eyes. They shall be the themes of welcome to your home and be made of the new gates you shall open up. A beautiful, beautiful piece by a beautiful human being, Rabbi Michael Strassfeld of the Jewish Catalog fame. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.